Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and on today's episode, I'm going to be going over my top 10 audio game changers. Now, what am I talking about when I say a game changer? Well, these are probably the 10 most important milestones or realizations or things that I have learned over the course of my career that really helped me level up my skills, my production, my mentality of making records, all of the above. So these are the big realizations, the big things that really helped me step up my career and my skills and the sound of my recordings. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode. It took me a long time to compile these and really think about all the things that have made the most significant impact on how I make records and how I hear sound. And some of these you will probably know from being a fan of the podcast, others you might not have thought about. So let's get started. So it wouldn't really be an episode of Recording Lounge Podcast unless I said something related to the source is king. This is one of my mottos that I'm always talking about on this podcast, but it was also one of the first really big, important realizations, one of the first big game changers that helped me completely redefine how I make records, how I approach my job, how I work with clients. So let me dive into this a little bit. When we're talking about The Source is King, what I really am talking about is how when I first heard how pro tracks sound, I'm talking about from big name artists, big name engineers at big studios with big budgets. When I first heard how those tracks really sound raw, it was it was like a truck hit me. You know, it was like, wow, those tracks sound incredible. Like, I thought there was all these mixed tricks going on or things like that that I just didn't understand or they were using EQ better than I was. No, that's really not it. The truth was that they got better source recordings than I did. Pro recordings from professional engineers and professional musicians and great players and great studios with great gear, like all of those things combined to make a stellar raw recording. And it really helped me understand that the mix starts from day one. You know, when you're getting tones, when you're getting a guitar sound or a snare sound or anything, you have to be thinking about the final product from the first second you're working on the record. You can't just put up a mic and say, yeah, that sounds okay. Well, it'll sound better later. That's not really how to approach it. That's not how the pros approach it. That's not how any of my heroes approach it. You really kind of have to commit to things as you go and really listen for the intended final product right away. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. In fact, it's incredibly difficult when you realize that's the standard and that these pros are really listening for that for minute one. And that's really what makes some of these producers excellent is that they can hear a tone and know that that's, that is close to what the final mix should sound like. And they can get it at the source with the right mic, the right mic placement, the right instrument, the right guitar cabinet, the right snare drum, whatever, right? And it becomes more about not thinking about sounds so much as good or bad or whatever, but more like what is going to work in the final product? What is something that's interesting and compelling and filling the right space and the right function, right? Those types of things all come back to the source's king. And almost any big realization that I have made related to the source's king has been like, oh, how come I can't get a good acoustic guitar sound? Maybe it's the mic. Maybe it's how I'm EQing it. Maybe it's how I'm compressing it. Maybe it's how I'm miking it up. Turns out most of the time it was me on the guitar or the guitar itself. And it sounded much better to use a better guitar or uh, play it in a better sounding room. The same thing goes for anything, drums, electric guitar, vocals, any of that. When you record a really, really good singer, they kind of sound great on any mic. When you record a really great acoustic guitar, it's very easy to mic up. Almost any position you mic it up sounds good. And 12th fret, 12 inches away or whatever, like our standard kind of mic placement for something like that, sounds great. 
Like it's it everything becomes easier when the source sound is really good. And when I'm talking about the source, I'm talking about the instrument, the amp, the room that you're in, like the thing you're actually recording. It makes such a difference. Another big realization that brought me back to this same game changer was I had a custom Marshall built for me. So it was uh, not from Marshall, but it's from an amp builder who built a 100-watt Marshall for me. And when I first got it, I made the assumption that, oh, well, he built it just like a Marshall. And there were certain things that he had changed that were his preference. And again, totally his right to do that. It's his amp. It's his, it's his you know, uh, model. Uh, I just had him custom make it for me with a couple of things, but I didn't mention any of those things because I didn't know, right? And yeah, it was a good sounding amp, but it didn't sound quite like my favorite recordings. And I'd put a mic on it and I thought, hmm, what's wrong with this? Like, why doesn't it sound like this or that? And I finally got in a really good example, really clean example of a vintage Marshall into the studio. And I compared it against mine. And I noticed like, wow, that is so much brighter than mine. Mine is very dark. Now, in the room, initially, my response was something like, oh, mine sounds so much smoother and warmer, right? And his sounded thin and harsh. But on a mic, it sounded right. It sounded like the sound I heard on records. This is kind of related to uh, a, a, an honorable mention that I was going to put in this episode, which is like the way that a source sounds in a room is not always the best indicator of how it's going to work in a recording, right? Like dark symbols in a room might sound great when you're sitting at the kit, but in the mix, they don't cut through at all. The ride symbol just disappears. Similarly, like a big sounding bass amp may sound awesome in the room. It rumbles the floor. It sounds cool, but you put a mic on it and it's just muddy and dull and dark. Okay. It's easy to get excited by what you're hearing in the room. So when I'm talking about the source, understand that like, especially if the source is loud, it's very difficult to really gauge the source in the room. Like ultimately we are kind of only caring about how it sounds on a mic, right? It can fool you because of how your ears work. It can fool you into thinking something is too bright, too dark, too fat, whatever, but it's really just a game of loudness, right? The first time I heard that really good Marshall, it sounded super harsh, it sounded super bright, and it sounded super thin. But really, it was just bright and loud. And he was running it way louder than I ran mine, and I realized that that's the sound, you know, the sound is really bright and loud. And as soon as I was able to modify my amp, change out a couple components, change out some bright caps, adjust a few things, suddenly it sounded right. And it sounded right on a mic. And it's one of those realizations that's tough to really get how many times it comes back over and over again, but it really does. It keeps coming up in my career time and time again. If you get a really good source and the source is right, it's not just something that somebody said was good, but like, you know, for sure, it's the right sound that is going to make the biggest difference of anything in the chain, right? Like no mic preamp is going to make a Martin Dreadnought sound like a Taylor. No mic preamp is going to make a Marshall sound like a Fender. No cable or compressor or EQ is going to make a Strat sound like a Les Paul. It's just not going to happen, okay? So the sooner you can admit to yourself that the source sound is arguably the most important thing, I think the better you will get. And really understand that like the pros are getting tracks that good at the source. They really are. I know that from hearing raw tracks from multiple big name pros. In fact, I encourage you at some point, sign up for Mix with the Masters for like a month if they'll let you do that. And just pull up any of those songs that you have, you know, big name guys mixing and listen to how good the raw tracks sound before they even do anything. And you will be humbled. You will hear, wow, those sound really good. And they're making a lot of money to mix those songs when it's really not that difficult to do because the source sounds are that good. Now, I'm not trying to discount the work of those pros. They still obviously have incredible ears and they know where to take it, right? But I, I just can't 
say it enough. The source is king. It is the most important game changer, I think, of my career and is one of the earliest ones, but it keeps recurring time and time and time again. When I hear the sound of the source itself changing, being tuned correctly, being adjusted correctly, being tweaked, um, going through the right cabinet, using the right snare drum head, right? Using the right set of cymbals or hi-hats, like all of those things, it makes such a big difference to the recording. And you can't go on intuition all the time. You can't just say, oh, I don't like this. I don't like bright symbols, so I'm not going to use that. I used to avoid the bright symbols too. I used to avoid all kinds of things for some weird reason because I thought that's not what I wanted. My brain was equating like, oh, I want a warm symbol sound, so I shouldn't use a bright symbol, right? That makes sense logically, but it depends on everything else. What's your snare sound? What's your room sound like? How is the player playing? Are they playing with brushes? You might actually need a bright symbol if you're playing with a brush because it won't be heard. What if you mic it up with uh, ribbons for your overheads? Well, then a bright symbol's not too bright, is it? How is it meshing with the rest of the kit, right? These are all types of things that I've come across time and time and time again. Another similar realization, I promise this is the last one, was the very first time I tried to record metal, I hooked up a pretty high-gain amp. It was a Laney or a Marshall, I think. I can't remember. And I had it going into a 212 open-back cabinet. And I was like, well, this sounds bad. <laughs> this doesn't sound like metal at all. And I didn't understand. I was like, I've got a 100-watt high-gain amp. How come it doesn't sound like metal? And one of my friends was like, oh, you need, a, you need a 412. You need like a Mesa 412, like a big 412 cabinet with vintage 30s. And I was like, why would that really make a difference? I mean, I've got vintage 30s in this cabinet. And he was like, just trust me. So I borrowed a 412 with Mesa vintage 30s, and um, it was night and day. The, I, I didn't understand that when you close in a cabinet and make it much larger, the entire structure of the low end changes. It, it completely changes how that cabinet pushes air, and it completely changes how the low frequencies push and punch, and it made a massive improvement. It sounded like metal suddenly, right? It was more, a little more scooped. It had tons of low end and it was a little darker on top versus the open back 212 had a kind of a thin, mushy low end, a lot of mid range, and it was really, really bright on top. And it was just like, wow, that made more of a difference than me sitting around for 30 minutes trying to EQ it or use a different mic or move the mic or any of those things. It was actually the source the whole time. So many times that has come up. So keep that in mind. Look at, look at your workflow. Look at everything you're doing. And if you're struggling to get a certain sound, right, check the source first. And, and, and throw your ego away. Throw your nostalgia away. Throw your habits away. You can't just be like, well, I know this is a good guitar. I spent a lot of money on it. You, you don't know that. You know what I mean? <laughs> just because something is expensive doesn't mean it records well. Doesn't mean it's the sound you're hearing in your head. You know, just because something is brand new or vintage or whatever, it doesn't matter what it is. You kind of have to throw away all your preconceived notions and assumptions about the sound that this should be good because it's this. This should be good because it's a Zildjian cymbal or a Ludwig snare or a Neve preamp, right? You, you got to throw that stuff out and really just analyze each piece in the chain and admit to yourself, the source is probably king. <laughs> I would say the next most important game changer in my career, and this is another thing I always talk about on the podcast, is really understanding monitoring and acoustics. And it's not just about the room or the treatment or the speakers. It's about how we hear, right? The room itself makes such a big difference in the accuracy of your listening environment and the accuracy of your listening environment makes such a big difference to the quality of your end result. And I can't tell you how many emails I get from podcast listeners still to this day that are asking me about, should I get this mic or this mic preamp or this whatever? And oh, by the way, here's my studio. And they're listening on tiny little monitors in a barely treated room. Every single time, the advice I'm gonna give them is, Coming from a place of experience, get better speakers, get your monitoring situation better. I promise it will make more of a difference than any mic pre or cable or interface or any of that. Um, 
It just does. I mean, the difference between interfaces or mic pre's or whatever is not nearly as much of a difference as moving your speakers a foot or two. I, I promise you that. That's like provable with measurements, right? Like the difference between a Neve clone A and Neve clone B might be a, you know, a dB or two here or there, slight amounts of distortion, right? But you could move your speakers two feet and get a 15 dB change depending on your room. And yeah, the room makes a bigger difference than the actual speakers you're using, but the speakers still are really important, especially in terms of imaging, phase, distortion, clarity, all of that stuff is high, high dependent on the speakers. It's really important to have a room with a linear frequency response. Uh, it's really important to have a room with a linear decay where you don't just have a bunch of high frequencies clouded all, all around and your low frequencies are crazy, but your mid-range is super controlled. Like that's not helpful. You need an even controlled room across the frequency spectrum and the time domain. Another important thing about monitoring is how loud you're listening. You know, for years, I listened to pros say things like, oh, I mix really, really quietly. And that's the only way to really, you know, get your mix good. And I did that for a long time and I've had some good results with it, but then you listen to a lot of mastering engineers and they're like, oh no, you need to use a calibrated monitoring system where you're listening where your ears are most accurate, which is somewhere around 82, 84 dB SPL. That one started to make more sense to me. And over the years, I kind of started to mix a little bit louder and a little bit louder and my mixes got better. And, you know, the Fletcher-Munson curve, the equal loudness curves are very real. And our ears will respond to brightness and, you know, top end and bottom end very differently at different volumes. And like, sure, sometimes mixing really quietly is a good thing. But a lot of times you just can't hear the bass, <laughs> at least for me. You know, your ears just aren't that good at hearing low end when you're mixing that quietly. So learning to mix things a little bit louder and monitor a little bit louder really helped. Now, not too loud because you'll get fatigue and you'll go the other way with the problem. Another really important part about monitoring is, at least for me, in my space, for my workflow, mixing in mono. I've done that for years, and it really, really helps me. As we've talked about on the podcast before, mixing in mono removes the sort of faux separation of panning, and you no longer hear like, oh, well, the guitar on the left and the vocal in the center, they're totally audible. You know, they're they're not stepping on each other, but your brain's being fooled because that's on the left and the vocal's in the center. If you listen in mono, suddenly all that width and space is removed from the equation and you're kind of forced to just listen to the frequency spectrum. And for me, I found it really helpful to hear fighting and frequency masking that way by listening in mono. I also find that because of the way that stereo works, because of the phase differences, because of the sensitivity of your head placement and your monitor width, like how wide they are placed, are they in an equilateral triangle or not, there's a lot of things that can influence your perception of width and balance. And yeah, sometimes when you go to mono, your guitars and things that are hard panned are going to seem a little bit quieter. That's something you have to get used to. But I find that if I mix in mono, I can really get things to have great separation and clarity, and you can really get good frequency balance between everything. Another important part about monitoring volume is not moving your monitor controller volume too much. That's another bad habit that I got into for a while, and uh, I started actually taping down my monitor controller with a piece of tape so that I wouldn't turn the volume up or down. I learned that it's helpful to set your volume to a comfortable level that is loud but not too loud, you know, not so quiet that it's annoying, not so loud that it's annoying or fatiguing, but set it to a comfortable volume and leave it there. I would catch myself turning up and down my volume a lot, and it doesn't seem to give your ears a chance to adjust to the change in tonality that your ears experience at different volumes. So I would be mixing a chorus, and I would turn it down to listen to the verse or whatever. I find it much more helpful to leave your monitor controller at one spot. I also found uh, something, you know, a number of years ago that started to prove really helpful was mixing with references and listening to references. Now, this is a tricky one. You can go too far with this and go down a rabbit hole that is not helpful. But it's very helpful, I think, to audit your own work and compare to 
the work of the pros and, and compare to what your clients are expecting and listening for their references, your own references. To It's helpful to understand your own speaker system. It's helpful to understand the things you lack. Just don't read so far into it that you start nitpicking things like, oh, no, they're, they have more 400 hertz than I do. You know, when you're getting really specific like that. Think in broad brush terms, right? Think, okay, they have more mid-range than I do in general. Maybe I'm mixing with too much mids. But then when you're listening to that, you also have to think, is it that they have too much mid-range or I have too much mid-range or that I'm not dynamically controlling my mid-range as well or that I have too many elements in the mid-range? Like, don't just think about it in sort of like these audio terms only. Think about it in terms of production as well. Think about it in terms of source tones. Do their guitars have more gain than yours or less? Does their snare drum have more crispiness than yours or less? And is that a source thing or is it a mix thing? Really try to listen for the difference there. And it's hard. It's hard to do because obviously you're listening to a finished mix that's been mastered versus yours. But the more you can glean from that, the better, as long as you don't read so far into it that you're now getting into like, okay, well, this is a different song. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't nitpick it so far that you're actually trying to make specific EQ decisions based around it, right? But use it as a learning tool. Don't just use it as a, a weird way to try to match an EQ curve or something. That's not really what it's for. You need to understand why, right? Like not just copying. Right? You're trying to understand why their low end sounds different than yours, why their mid-range sounds dif different than yours. Another important monitoring thing is that the ends of the spectrum, the very far ends of the spectrum, like sub, you know, low frequencies below 60 hertz, and then like the air region as well, like above 10K, let's say. Those regions can fool you, not only because our ears are just not very good there, but because that's where a lot of speakers will, will struggle. Right? That's where you will struggle to hear clarity or air or whatever on a phone. Even though it is you know, bright, it doesn't necessarily have a nice clear 20 kilohertz or 15 kilohertz or 10 kilohertz. And it certainly doesn't have any sub, right? Same thing in the car. The car might have really decent sub, but maybe doesn't really have good high frequencies like air frequencies. So you have to be aware that your studio monitoring system if it's good and if your room is treated and you know it by having good calibrated monitors that uh, you have measured with a measurement mic, like I'm just going to say like, don't even, don't bother emailing me if you haven't measured your room. I, I really mean that. And it's not because I don't want to help. I do. I'm trying to help. I, I, I mean it. But like if you haven't set up a measurement mic in your room and measured what, like as soon as you do that, you will answer 50 questions of, of your own. You know what I mean? Like, should I treat my room more? Is there something, you know, how accurate is my system? Like, I really think a lot of people just don't do that. And they live sort of in denial of, of what their rig is. They're like, oh yeah, it sounds really good in here. And it's like, I, I don't know. I, people, people can convince themselves of a lot, you know? Whereas if they just set up a measurement microphone and hit two or three buttons, they could get proof of what their room sounded like. They could get like definitive measured proof of how accurate their speakers are. And I think honestly, people are afraid. They, they don't want to spend $100 on a measurement mic and find out that their speakers are not very good or that their room is not very good. But I, I promise you, you will be better for it. Your career will level up for it and it's only a hundred bucks or less. Um, anyway, what I'm getting at is ultimately... I think your goal should be to trust your main monitors more than anything, more than any reference speaker, computer speaker, phone speaker, car speaker, any of that. I used to be of the mindset that I had to check my mixes on a thousand systems and find some sort of average or something so where it sounded good on all of them. I don't do that anymore. In fact, I don't check my mixes on anything anymore. I mix on my barefoots. I trust my barefoots. I know my room is accurate because I've spent a lot of time and effort to get it that way. I trust my room and my mixes translate. You know, I very rarely get comments from clients about, uh, oh, well, in the car, I can't hear this, but on headphones, it's really loud. Like, I don't get that problem anymore, ironically, right? Like, you would think I used to check things on those different systems and I got more notes about that than I do now. 
so yeah, I would say that's <laughs> I would say that's another part of the monitoring thing is that reference speakers I think are kind of overrated. If you can know with proof that you can trust your monitoring system, then trust it. You know, all of these things, all of these monitoring things I've mentioned. It's it's more than just your room and your speakers and your treatment. All of that. I mean, it's it's just having a relationship with your monitoring where you take it seriously and understand that it's so, so important. It is the lens through which you gauge everything, every decision, every mic, every mic placement, every source, every mix, everything. Please take it seriously. Okay, please take it seriously. It matters so much. It matters more than any mic pre or mic or converter or interface or plugin. Okay, really. Be honest with yourself, grab a measurement mic, measure your speakers, measure your room, and take steps to get it better, right? Take steps to get it more accurate. Putting on a plug-in that does room correction or whatever is not going to do it, okay? That stuff is okay for the last little icing on the cake to tighten things up a little bit, but the room has got to be really acoustically designed, essentially, where you find the right spot for the speakers, you find the right spot for the listening placement, you treat a lot, and that is how you can get an accurate listening environment. Of course, most of us don't have the ability to just design a room completely from scratch. Uh, we are often retrofitting in a bedroom or a house or a garage or some sort of converted space. So I get it. It's not ever going to be, you know, 100% perfect for most of us. But I think a lot of people just don't put in the effort to do that. And and I promise you, you will save yourself years, years of struggling if you just take my advice. I, I, I don't get anything in return uh, from, from telling you this. Like, I, I gain nothing. Uh, if anything, I, I, I could get money by trying to sell you preamps or plugins or something, but that's just not it. That's just not the answer, okay? 90% of the time, it comes back to source and monitoring. Like, those first two game-changer things, like really admitting those to yourself, I think could level up anyone out there. So take it to heart. I promise it will help. Another really big game changer for me was understanding the importance of the fundamental. And what I mean is the fundamental pitch of whatever instrument you're recording. I remember this first manifested for me with kick drum. I had done a mix that I was pretty proud of, and I sent it to a mastering engineer. And I remember him telling me, you know, this mix sounds really good except for the kick. And I was like, what's wrong with the kick? And he was like, you have like way too much second harmonic in this kick. Like you've, this kick is tuned to like 40 Hertz or something, but you've, it's like all 80. And that was the first time I ever had somebody really point that out. And it's the first time I'd ever really thought about it. Like, oh, like he, he can tell probably from an analysis software also helps um, that the kick is tuned to 40, but I was getting tons of second harmonic and not getting enough fundamental. This also manifested for me when I first understood the importance of a closed back cabinet, similar to the story I told before the first time I had tried to record metal. But it really happened for me later when I was playing with a rig for a live band and I was using a 212 open back cabinet. And I thought, I wonder what this would sound like if I just like put a piece of wood on the back. Like I, I feel like this band kind of needs a closed back cabinet for some reason. So I bought a piece of plywood and I screwed it into the back of the cabinet and I recorded it before and after. And suddenly it was like, that was the sound I had been missing. And it was kind of just by accident. That's not what I expected it to happen. I mean, it, it changed the sound of that whole rig by having a closed back cabinet versus an open. And one of the big things that happened was that the low end of the guitar suddenly showed up. All that stuff below 150 hertz suddenly was really clear and full I could turn down the low end on the amp a little bit, which helped it not distort and be so muddy down there because now the cabinet was making up some of that low end, which meant the circuit could be cleaner in the low end. It, it, it created this domino effect where everything got better. Now, I'm not saying that closed back cabinets are always the way to go, but I'm just saying that understanding that the fundamental of that guitar, like when I play a low E and I want to get 82 hertz, I wasn't getting it. And I, that's what I was looking for. This also translated into acoustic guitar and piano, trying to record an acoustic guitar, thinking that it was all about the upper harmonics and the shimmer and all this stuff, and then realizing, actually, 
it kind of works better to get a more fundamental focused tone that is less complex and then brighten it or use a mic with a little less tubby of a low end or use a guitar with a little bit less tubby of a low end. But if that fundamental is gone, if the actual fundamental of the note that you're playing is not clear, it's incredibly difficult to get it back. You can't really get it back. Similarly on bass guitar, the first time I heard an Ernie Ball bass in the studio with a session player and he played that low B string and I like felt like 30 hertz rumbling around. It was like, whoa, like that fundamental tone is there. It's not all second, third, fourth harmonic. It's the fundamental. It's there. And this topic is probably too deep for me to go into on this podcast, but it manifested itself time and time and time again. It's been a really big game changer for me, understanding the importance of the fundamental. Some people have asked me, for example, okay, well, if the source is king and you're trying to get a really good sound, like, doesn't it make sense that like, okay, if I want my guitar to fit in the mix better, like it would be better for me to use like a thinner sounding amp and then mic it up rather than like a thicker sounding amp and then roll off the low end? Mm, that's where this gets a little bit tricky because sometimes, sometimes not. Like I said on the previous one, sometimes the source tone, like, yes, the source tone really matters, but I don't necessarily mean in the room. That can fool you, especially with loud stuff. The point is the source recording, right? And yes, maybe that source recording needed a little bit of EQ or whatever, but that's fine. What I'm, what I'm getting at is that fundamental is different than just having more or less low end, right? Like if you record a kick drum and it's tuned to an A, 55 hertz, right? It's one thing to take an EQ and just add more 55 hertz. It's another thing to tune the kick in such a way to where 55 hertz is loud and 110 hertz is not as loud. And it's a very different thing to tune it or mic it in such a way where 55 hertz is quiet and 110 is really loud. For example, the AKG D112. I hate that mic. <laughs> I think it's a terrible microphone on kick drum. And for years, my heroes talked about that's the mic they use inside. And I think that mic sounds terrible. And it's funny because if you look up the frequency response of that mic, it starts rolling off at like 100 hertz or 70 hertz or something. So in the modern era, if we're tuning a kick drum to 40, 50, 60 hertz, which is much more common, that mic does not capture it well. It, it just doesn't. You pretty much have to use an outside mic with it. So I changed so many of my preferences on microphones, on speakers, on cabinets, on tuning drums, on drum head choices, on so many things because of this game changer, because of understanding like it's really important to capture a fundamental well. You can, you can turn it down, you can EQ it out, you can filter it, you can do a lot of things, but if it's not there, if it's gone or if it's tuned weird or if it's not coming through clearly, it's muddy, it's just almost impossible to get it back. So like I said, this is a deep topic, so I can't really go into everything about it, but I recommend next time you record something, acoustic guitar, kick drum, piano, whatever it is, think about the lowest note that's being played, right? If it's on a guitar, that might be a low E, right? About 82 hertz. And pull up an analyzer, pull up a frequency analyzer and look to see how much 82 hertz are you getting as opposed to 160 or 240, right? Just think about it. Think about why that could be. And I can tell you now, it could be because of a lot of things. It could be the mic choice, the positioning, the source itself uh, is a big contender. It could be maybe you're, you know, trying to mic it too far away or too close or from a weird angle. Maybe your room has a null at that frequency. For example, in my room, I have a little bit of a dip around 70 hertz. So if my floor tom is tuned to 70 hertz, it doesn't sound as full as if it's tuned to 60 hertz. And, and you can tell that in my room mics. You can't really tell that on a close mic, but you can tell it on the room mics for sure. If I tune my floor tom too high, it kind of gets quieter because of the room. So there's a lot of factors that could, that could be why am I not getting a strong fundamental. But just, just think about it. Think about it next time you record something. Number four, this is related to the fundamental one, but it's the idea that brightness and harmonic richness are not the same thing. This is one of the biggest game changers that I experienced, and I think I first experienced it maybe six years ago. 
I was working with an artist and we were recording acoustic guitars and he mentioned that he doesn't ever use coded strings on acoustic guitars because he said they're way too complex. Now, he notice he didn't say too bright, too new, too shiny, any of those terms. He said complex. And we recorded acoustic guitars with his guitars with uncoded strings, and they sounded incredible. And at first I thought, these are going to sound too dull. But they didn't. They sounded great. And in fact, they worked better in the mix than any of the guitars we had done with coded strings which were mine. And I didn't understand it. Why did the older strings sound clearer and brighter in a way than my guitars with coated strings, which are supposed to sound brand new? And for years, I told people, I gave people the advice of like, put on brand new strings, you know, coated strings too, like that can help. And I realized that it's not a one size fits all piece of advice. A lot of times it worked better to have a slightly simpler, less complex, less harmonically rich top end, it made the sound a bit more focused, and then it allowed you to brighten or darken. And, and it occurred to me, finally, that when we're talking about something being rich or dense or complex, what we're talking about is the, the amount of frequency content, right? Like how many frequencies are present, how many harmonics are showing up, right? But when we're talking about something that's bright or dark, really what we're talking about is just the loudness of those frequencies. Are they louder or quieter? Like think of a shelf, like an EQ, like a, like a high shelf, right? We're just turning those up and down. We're not modifying how dense it is up there. We're just turning it up or down in relationship to the low end. So I realized this and it started trickling over into lots of different things into guitars, snares, cymbals, distortion, all of it. It started making me think about high frequencies and high mids versus harmonics differently and made me realize they are not the same thing. There are some situations where a really bright, rich, dense, harmonically complex thing is really lovely and beautiful. But in a lot of cases, it actually worked a little better to have a sound that was slightly simpler, slightly less complex and less rich. I'm talking about like a brand new set of strings versus a set of strings that have been played for 30 minutes and then brightening that sound or using a brighter mic. That worked better than just trying to get a brighter, more complex sound. And again, this it, it all depends. There are certain situations where that's not the case. For example, you can't really get the same result with a dead snare drum head. If you have a really dead snare drum head and you try to brighten it and make it sound really crispy, it doesn't really do it. It doesn't really do the same thing as just getting a new snare head. The other thing is that on a snare, when you put on a brand new snare head and it's bright and crispy and ringy and articulate, it's bright in every mic. It's bright in the overheads, it's bright in the close mic, it's bright in the room mics, like it affects other things. Whereas if you have a dead taped up snare head and you try to just EQ it, you know, you can't just pull it out of the overheads and make it brighter without touching the sound of the cymbals. It all affects everything. This whole thing also helped me understand the idea of clarity better and how it's not necessarily just a high frequency phenomenon. In fact, clarity can bleed over into any frequency range and much of it is to do with this same idea that loudness in a certain frequency region and harmonic density in a certain frequency region are not the same. For example, you can have a clear low end on your bass, but you can also have a muddy low end on your bass. And much of that depends on how focused it is. For example, if you have a really complex bass sound and you play a low B, which which is right around 30 hertz, you're going to get 30, 60, 90, 120, 150, 180, 210, all the way up the frequency spectrum. And that might be what you need. It definitely will help you hear the bass better on smaller speakers and whatnot, but it might also take up way too much frequency space. So just understanding that this applies to so many areas, this, this thing led me to so many discoveries about EQ and saturation and just tonality of things in general and listening to sounds differently. Another thing that's interesting is that because of the way music has shifted over the years and we've gone through the loudness war for the last 20 years or more, if we want things to be louder, pretty much the only way we can do that is by compressing, limiting, saturating, clipping, right? 
if you do those things to an already complex sound, the sound gets even more complex because you're adding more harmonic content. You're essentially turning a transient phenomenon into a harmonic phenomenon. And if your sound is already harmonically complex, it can get fatiguing and annoying to listen to. Whereas if your sound is a little simpler, a little less complex harmonically, sometimes that can work better if you plan on distorting it because it doesn't make it as crispy or as, you know, harsh and fizzy because you're simplifying the source, making the source a little bit less harmonically complex and instead adding harmonic content with distortion or saturation or limiting, right? So one of the things that I have incorporated into my production more is the use of multiband or parallel saturation in different frequency areas. One of my favorite plugins ever made to do this exact thing is a plugin called Spectre by Waves Factory. This is basically a boost-only saturator EQ. So when you're adding an EQ band, what you're actually doing is adding like harmonic content in that band rather than just turning the frequency content up. And for each band, you can adjust, of course, gain and Q, but you can adjust the type of saturation. You can do parallel. You can even adjust stereo placement. So for example, you could add high frequency content, high frequency density and saturation only to the side channel. It's a really powerful EQ and I use it a lot. And it's extremely different sounding from just turning things up or down. Another great example of this is FabFilter Saturn, which is a multiband distortion device, a multiband saturator. And it's really, really cool to use, for example, just the high frequency band to add some sizzle and grit and texture to whatever sound you're working with. I really like using Saturn on certain types of drums or uh, bass or electric guitars. It can be really useful at bringing back some sizzle and some life into digital recordings. And that's something that I also learned about from watching a lot of content from Eric Valentine. And it made me feel a lot less crazy because I saw him going through a mix that he was working on and he added a single band of FabFilter Saturn on a kick. And he was adding high frequency distortion to that kick. And he was like, this sounds a bit more like what I expect when I'm driving like a tape machine or a console. It just sounds more exciting and textured. And I love the way he described it. He said that a lot of times with a really great analog chain, you know, with good preamps and consoles and an analog tape, it sounds somehow brighter, but smoother and less harsh at the same time. Whereas a lot of times digital can sound somehow soft and dark, but also harsh. And I, it finally clicked for me. That was such a great way to describe this problem is that a lot of times digital stuff will present the high frequency so bluntly that you're getting this really focused sort of harshness in that area. But as you add high frequency saturation to things from, uh, you know, analog gear, from tape, from preamps, from compressors, from whatever circuit you're running through, those harmonics kind of get spread out because they're getting more dense. Now, where this is really important is understanding how the recording differs from the mix, okay? So as I was going through this whole process of learning this, one of the things I realized is that if you get a simpler source sound, let's say an electric guitar or an acoustic guitar, you can get away with adding more saturation on it because it is less dense already. So when you add saturation, it doesn't sound overwhelming. However, if you start with a really rich, complex, high-frequency content, adding any sort of saturation can sometimes be overwhelming. It can sound harsher and harsher and harsher and more dense, and the RMS of your high end gets really, really flat and spitty and, you know, annoying. Everything starts to sound very compressed up there, and that's not what I want. So I have found, in general, for so many different types of sounds, I really like a more focused, less dense high end. And I really think, not to make such a sweeping statement about musicians or whatever, but I really think this is the primary thing that musicians hear in vintage equipment. Vintage drums have typically rounder bearing edges. They have less sharp harmonics in the high frequencies because of how the head contacts the drum. 
Vintage guitars have less high-frequency complexity because the wood has aged. It doesn't vibrate as efficiently. And a lot of times they're using uncoated strings, which also don't vibrate as efficiently in those high frequencies. Vintage guitars, especially if you're using something with, you know, a really uh, rounded bridge or if you're using flat-wound strings, these do not have as much high-frequency sensitivity and high-frequency complexity. The same goes for an upright piano versus a grand piano. A grand piano is like a precision-made instrument with a beautiful, perfect, high-frequency, you know, complex sound. But a lot of times we prefer the sound of an old, worn-out, upright piano. Why? Well, it's less rich in those high frequencies. It's not that they're necessarily quieter. It's that they're less dense there. All of these things sound more vintage and less modern. So, as you can imagine, this really affects every single part of my production process, from selecting an instrument to selecting a mic preamp to how I'm going to process it, and all the way up to how it's processed in the mix, the type of chain it goes through, through a drum bus, through master bus, all of those things. It really is pretty prominent. And when I started considering this a lot more, when listening to sounds and when processing sounds and really trying to figure out what am I trying to do here? Am I actually trying to just turn the high frequencies up or down? Or am I trying to make the high frequencies denser or less dense with harmonic content? It really helped me refine my top end and make my recordings have the right kind of top end texture and density. And it helped me clear space for the things that are really important in the high frequencies. And it helped me make certain sounds stand out more. Like if I want something to take up more frequency space, then it needs to be more harmonically complex. It's taking up almost horizontal space, not talking about width, I'm talking about like frequency spectrum, right? It's taking up more horizontal space versus something that's taking up more vertical space being louder or quieter. That makes sense. So I encourage you to start thinking about this, and I definitely encourage you to check out Spectre and Saturn. They're two amazing plugins that are really great for hearing the difference between these two things. Just play around with them and compare it to just using a normal EQ on something, like take an electric guitar and add like a high-frequency shelf with FabFilter or some clean EQ with no coloration, and compare that to a high shelf within Saturn or within Spectre. It's a very different experience. So yeah. Brightness versus darkness versus harmonic richness in the highs versus harmonic simplicity in the highs. Those are all different things. Another really big game changer for me was understanding what I call the transient life cycle. And I actually did a podcast episode about this because it was such a big thing for me. And I still think about it sometimes when it really finally clicked. But it's the idea that for so long, you have it in your mind that like compressors are good for evening things out and like controlling dynamics, but you don't really realize that compressors actually are not very good at doing that on very transient heavy instruments like snare drum or kick. They're pretty good at evening things out like bass and vocals, but they're a lot of times they're not quick enough to actually even out a snare or a kick or a tom or even an acoustic guitar, like the really spiky, bright transients of an acoustic guitar. A lot of times that's something that's better handled by saturation or limiting, brick wall limiting or clipping. And again, at first you would think saturation on acoustic guitar, that's, I don't want that. I don't want it to sound distorted, but it's not about that. Right? I have a video on my YouTube channel called Mixing for Loudness, and uh, I think it's called Mixing for Loudness Experiments with Saturation and Compression. And I have an acoustic guitar example on that video, and it shows what I'm talking about, I think, really well. I also have a video about the transient life cycle. But I guess the idea is when you realize that things like analog tape, things like mic preamps and tube mics, things like analog consoles, all have a nice harmonic color to them. And when you push them, they do clip a little bit and they do saturate a little bit. Not, not a lot. We're not talking about like amp distortion here. We're talking about slight amounts of clipping. We're talking about subtle, gradual clipping that over the course of an analog chain actually takes care of a lot of those weird spiky peaks. And engineers of old didn't even have to think about it. They didn't even have to worry about that because that was the only way to make records with a console and a tape machine. So they 
pushed into the console and it sounded better and they didn't really have to think about why. It was like, oh, because it's an Eve? I mean, it sounds good because it's an Eve. I don't know. But now with digital, we understand that like if you record a clean microphone into a clean preamp in straight into the DAW, it is really clean. And you're not getting any clipping or saturation on those transients. They are coming through crystal clear. And that's a problem because we also have things like compressors that are sensitive to input level. And if we're using a plugin and it has a threshold and you have a really spiky peak, it's going to cross that threshold. And that compressor will react very differently than what the analog hardware would have done. Even if it is modeled just like the analog piece, it's not going to react quite like it because the source sound you're sending it is insanely clean. Something that that piece of gear originally was not intended to work with. It was intended to work with something going through an analog console or an analog preamp of some kind or a tape machine. And those things took care of some of those spiky peaks. And so the transient life cycle is really all about how over the course of an entire recording chain, from the mic to the pre to an EQ or a compressor, a console, a tape machine, going out from the tape machine back to a console to mix, then to a half-inch machine to mix, then to a master. Like, through all of these stages, those transients are getting shaped and reshaped. They're getting clipped, and then the compressor is reshaping them to be punchy again. They're getting clipped again from saturation. Then the compressors are getting, you know, on the master bus compressor, that's reshaping that transient. And it's this constant, like, molding of a ball of clay into this thing. And it really drastically changes over time. And if you really understand that the sound of saturation and analog gear is not always that obvious. In fact, in many times you don't even know what's happening because it's very subtle, but the cumulative effect is, is great. And you can, you can have sounds that are actually kind of clipped and saturated, but they don't sound like it. And one of the reasons why is because our ears are not very good at hearing really quick transients. And the analog gear would actually clip some of those off. We would not have any idea. If we A-B'd, we probably wouldn't be able to even hear the difference because our ears aren't that good. So I, I advise you to check out those videos on my YouTube channel about that. Mixing for loudness and then the transient life cycle. And, and listen to some of those examples that I talk about. I, I think they'll describe it better than I'm describing it here. And I can go into more detail, but understanding the transient life cycle, understanding what that really means and what it means for signal flow, for gear choice, for processing order, for processor, processor choice, again, for not being afraid of your own gear, for not being afraid of using a limiter or a clipper or uh, slamming a mic preamp or whatever, like not being afraid of those things. And because you understand them, you understand what that's getting you. That's really powerful. So... Yeah, that was a huge game changer for me. So this episode went on longer than I expected, so I'm actually going to have to put this into two parts. But I hope it was informative. I hope it blew your mind in certain ways, like it has blown my mind over the years. As always, make sure to check out recordingloungepodcast.com. Check out our YouTube channel. Check out the Discord, which you can join. It's on the front page of the website, and you can just join it right there and join the conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Make sure to check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash recordinglounge to become a supporter of the podcast. And I'll talk to you soon on part two. See ya.